All right, so we're continuing our study through the Gospel of Mark. So if you um, have your Bible, you want to turn there. If you're using the Pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible with you, um, you can find one in the Pew right in front of you. And you can find our text on page 842. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. So we're just walking through the Gospel of Mark section by section. Um, week by week, and so this week we come to chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 23. So as we um, prepare to dive into this text, I want to just think about something, just kind of a very common dynamic that we've all experienced, um, pretty obvious, but worth drawing attention to. If you are going to see, meet up with someone who's really important to you, okay? Like, you know, a big date would be kind of an obvious example of this, but it could be other things, an important job interview or whatever. You're probably gonna take a shower. Amen, anyone? Okay, hopefully. You're gonna get cleaned up. You're gonna dress just right, and that doesn't mean you're gonna always dress to the nines, but you're gonna dress appropriate to that context and that meeting. You don't want to smell bad, hopefully. You don't want to look bad. You don't want to have bad breath. You don't want to have green things in between your teeth. You don't want stains on your clothes. You don't want a bad hair day. Your appearance and your attention to it is a visual indicator of the importance of the person you're going to be meeting and the occasion that's upcoming. Okay, so keep that in mind. When we read the book of Leviticus, okay, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, Leviticus can be a difficult one. Bible reading programs, more Bible reading programs have been derailed in Leviticus than probably any other book, right? Um, All these clean, unclean laws, and it just seems like too much. And we can also think it just has nothing to do with our daily lives today. But we should actually think again. Leviticus, all the clean, unclean laws, were all about God's holiness, the most important person in the universe, and our unholiness, our uncleanness because of our sin. So how do we approach a God who's perfect, who's holy, white-hot holy, when we are unholy and unclean? Listen, we all wrestle with guilt, and shame. What do you do about it? It plagues us. We know we're not clean. We know that we're, if we're examined in the light of God's perfection and his radiance, we come up short. So can we just clean up our act? Can we just do some good works and do the equivalent of taking like a spiritual shower, you know, washing off our uncleanness? Can we, can we pull that off? Can we give some money to the church or some, you know, worthy charity, do some good deeds, spraying a little perfume, cologne on our souls? Can we do some community service or buy a meal for a homeless person and brush the teeth of our conscience? Just go with me here. (laughs) So every religion has its answer to this problem of guilt, Shame, uncleanness, being defiled, dirtiness, like we just know we're dirty. 
and there is some prescription for how to cleanse your soul. Well, the Gospel of Mark teaches us that Jesus' answer to this problem, what that answer is, shows it very clearly, and shows us that Jesus is the only true answer to this problem, okay? So we're walking through the, the Gospel of Mark, the series title is King and Cross, and the reason is because Mark's gospel is focused two central things, the identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. Who is this, and why did he come? And we've seen over and over again lots of who is this um, in previous chapters, and also We've seen increasingly more pointers as to why he came. We're going to see both of these issues here this morning, identity and mission. So cleansing is front and center, and we'll see the religious leaders of the day focused on external cleanness, but Jesus was after the heart, okay, and inside-out cleansing. So here we go. We're going to look at it in three points. This is point number one, cleansing outside. Mark chapter 7 verse 1. And when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees, see this parenthesis here, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Just a little side note here, the reason why Mark is explaining these things, like if you had a Jewish audience as your primary audience, you wouldn't need to explain these things because this is like the air that they breathe growing up. But Mark's gospel most likely has a primary Gentile, you know, like Romans, non-Jews audience. So he's sensitive to explain these things to them. So this whole washing thing was actually not like hand washing before meals. It's actually not an Old Testament regulation. Did you know that? It's part of the oral law that was determined by the religious leaders. It's kind of captured in the Mishnah, okay? So it was created to make sure that Torah, God's law, the Old Testament, was clearly applied to every aspect of life. Like, kind of like, well, Lord, you weren't really quite specific enough, so we're going to make sure we make this really specific for every aspect, every situation in life. So what they ended up doing is kind of like putting a fence around the law. Got to make sure you don't sin, so we'll just make the fence even further back so you don't even get close. Okay? So that's kind of what's happening here. And those in the Old Testament, the only kind of washing rituals like this were related to the priests. But in the oral law, it got extended to the people. So you can imagine religious leaders considered, you know, all the ways that people could become unclean. We need to think this through so we can plan ahead and tell you how to avoid it. You know, if you've been to the marketplace, who knows what you may have touched or touched you or the thing that you pick up, what it touched and, you know, like all these things. So therefore, you've got to avoid all of that defilement. So when you come back from the marketplace, make sure you wash your hands before you eat so that you don't, what, ingest uncleanness? 
So also I should just make a quick mention of the fact that this is not primarily about hygiene for them, okay? Clean and unclean was a ritual purity thing, not a hygienic issue. So for instance, if you touched a corpse, you might not get dirty, but you would become unclean according to Old Testament law, right? See the difference? Okay. Verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Why do they eat with defiled hands? So oftentimes Jesus would interact with these people, Jews or with the leaders. He would respond with a question. He would explain some things or teach some things. But instead, he just goes right to the heart here. He kind of goes for the jugular. He calls out the Pharisees and the scribes. Look at it, verse 6. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this is Isaiah 29, 13, this people honors me with their lips, lip service, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. It's going hard at him here. And he keeps pressing. Look at verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, so this is Old Testament law, God's law, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Okay, so what's this korban or korban thing? Anybody know what deferred giving is? This might be somewhat of a parallel dynamic. Okay, so let me... Let James Edwards, he's a New Testament um, scholar, commentator. I think he summarizes it well. So Corban was similar to the concept of deferred giving. Today, a person may will property to a charity or institution at his or her death, though retaining possession over the property and the proceeds or interest accruing from it until then. In the case of Korban, a person could dedicate goods to God and withdraw them from ordinary use, although retaining control over them himself. In the example of verse 11, a son declares his property Korban, which at his death would pass into the possession of the temple. In the meantime, however, the son retains control over the property and his control deprives his parents of the support that otherwise would have been derived from the property in their old age. And then he quotes a guy named T.W. Manson. A man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, not that he may give it to God, but in order to prevent some other person from having it. You see what's going on here? So once the money or the property was devoted to God, korban, is their term, then it couldn't be used to help your parents. In fact, the priests apparently charged a person 30 to 50 shekels to cancel Korban so that there was extra motivation to keep it there. Do you see? Because it was costly to pull it out. 
Now remember, in the first century, there's no social security, there's no 401ks, there's no Medicare, Medicaid. Your children were your retirement plan, <laughs> okay? And that was normal that the kids would care for their parents when they got older. So honor your father and mother. This clear command of God gets set aside. In fact, it's even rejected out of compliance with this man-made policy which was ultimately self-serving. It was self-serving to the priests. We want more money in the coffers. And it was self-serving for the people who used it to protect their money so that they wouldn't have to help out in ways that they were supposed to. You see what's going on? You see why Jesus is going after this? Sadly, this was not an exceptional case. It's just one example of many man-made traditions that obscured or undermined God's commandments. Do you see what Jesus says there in verse 13? By your tradition that you've handed down, you may void the word of God and many such things you do. Okay, so why do we just go through all that? <laughs> it's just like historical curiosity. Is it completely irrelevant to us since we don't live in a day and time when ritual purity is a thing that's, you know, obsessed over and applied in minute detail? You know, we've got Social Security now. Why are we talking about Corban, whatever? No, listen, step back and think about what's going on here. This is man-made religion versus God's word and commandment. Or perhaps more accurately, man-made religion trumping God's clear word. So let's try to get at it this way. Imagine if you could interview the priest or the Levite in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that story? It's a man that gets, you know, waylaid by robbers, beaten up, they steal his stuff, and he's lying there half dead, and a priest comes by walks by on the other side of the road. Levite, same thing. Because the guy that came to Jesus says, you know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And, you know, Jesus gives him the law. Oh, I've done that. And, or no, Jesus says, love Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind your soul, love your neighbor as yourself. And he desired to justify himself. And so Jesus tells this parable to expose what's in his heart. Okay? So, what do you think those, that, that Levite and that priest would have said as far as why they did what they did? They would have given a religious answer, right? Justification. They might have had good religious reasons for passing by on the other side of the road. So this guy in Luke 10 is an expert in the law that's, you know, interacting with Jesus and here's the thing, like, you know, if, he it's, if, if he's dead, I'll touch a corpse and I'll be unclean. Well, I've got to get to my religious duties. I can't stop. What if it's a ruse? And really, this is just kind of like ketchup on his, you know, whatever the first century equivalent of, ketchup, of you know, ketchup is, fake blood. And, and those robbers are behind the rock and they're going to get me too. So do you keep clean or do you love your neighbor? Do you see the point? You trump the clear command of God to love neighbor by religious observance. 
So here's the thing. Let's just ask ourselves and be honest with ourselves. Do you ever use religious observance or a religious reason as a justification for avoiding a clear commandment of God? Or do you ever use religious observance to sidestep obedience or to alleviate guilt? Maybe some of you already know what I'm talking about, but some of you might be like, huh? Do you ever give money to try to salve and quiet your guilty conscience rather than deal with the thing that you'd rather keep hidden? Church attendance, serving in ministry is not intended to ever be a makeup call for sin. It doesn't work that way. That's trying to clean yourself up. Do you see? Or it's like the times that I've been on a plane and maybe sense that God wants me to share the gospel with the person next to me and instead I read my Bible. <laughs> like, do you see? Oh, I'll do the spiritual thing rather than doing what God wants me to do. You know, there's a phrase in the Bible that goes like this, to obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your sacrifice. Would you just trust me and do what I've said? So listen, you could listen to all clean Christian music. You could only watch things on pure flicks. You could plan awesome family game nights. You could avoid the world. But if you think that because of all that you're clean and righteous, you've missed the point. If we can just clean up our own act, then why did Jesus need to die? Or if you're doing all of this kind of avoid the world stuff so as to not defile yourself or your family as if all the danger's out there, it can be a baptized version of trying to save your life and your comfort because you don't want to invite all the messiness of loving people into your life because people are messy. It's just a lot easier to circle the wagons and guard yourself from defiling yourself. Okay, maybe that's caricatured a little bit, but you see what I'm getting at here. We could love our clean Christian lives and feel pretty self-righteous about it, all the while our hearts are far from Jesus. So we do not want Jesus to have to say to us like he did to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. External religion, but your heart's in a different place. This people honors me with their lips, you know, singing the songs, raising the hands, but their heart is far from me. In vain. If that's the case, then your worship is in vain. So we attend church to meet with God, to worship God, to be fed by his word and transformed by the renewing of our minds to express our dependence on God, to love and encourage and bear the burdens of our Christian brothers and sisters, not to earn points with God, not to, you know, shift the spotlight like, I know God wants me to do this, but at least I'm faithful in checking off the boxes. We read the Bible. Similarly, it's food for our soul. We need Jesus. We need grace. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's not we read the Bible because we feel better about ourselves before God when we've checked off at least four or five boxes this week. 
as if that's gonna clean up our act or make us acceptable to God. Same thing for prayer. We pray because we're desperate and needy. We're sinners. He's the Savior. We need him. We need his grace not to earn righteousness or acceptance. We don't do it to clean up our act, to keep ourselves clean and acceptable to God by doing these things. Because our problem, every human being, our problem is much deeper than behavior. And the solution is much deeper than behavior modification. Okay, we are defiled inside, dirty inside. Point number two. So the scribes and Pharisees had, you know, elaborate guidance on what needed cleansing, hand washing, but also, as Jesus mentions here, you know, cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches and all that kind of stuff. So Jesus turns this to address the inner interior surface of the heart, okay? So they were concerned about the interior of cups because it could hold, you know, uncleanness. Got to wash that out. Well, what about the interior of the human being? That's what we ought to be most concerned about. So verse 14, he called the people to him again. So he's calling out the scribes and Pharisees, calling them hypocrites. Now, this is the second part of this text. He's calling the people to him because he's going to teach them. Don't be led astray by these hypocrites. Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Like, do you not understand what I just said? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside, we're talking about food here, whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not into his heart, like spiritual kind of command center, but into his stomach and then it's expelled. Yes, latrine, okay? Ends up in the toilet. Thus he declared all foods clean. So notice here, again, little just sidebar here, but Mark didn't write, thus Jesus said all foods were clean. He wrote, Jesus declared all foods clean. Whoa, like this is shocking. This is like Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, saying, hey, I'll write the rules on the Sabbath and where rest comes from. He declared all foods clean. He's greater than the law is what this means. Whoa. Like the clean laws are being fulfilled in Jesus. We've arrived. The signpost is no longer needed. The Old Testament, you know, clean laws, all that, it's no longer needed. The shadow is no longer needed. The substance is here. We've arrived. So it's an indicator of Jesus' authority And it's also a pointer to the inclusiveness of the mission because people are going to be invited to this table from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You don't have to keep kosher to be at Jesus' table. So, verse 20, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, 
sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. I mean, we all have to put our hands over our mouth. Like, we're without excuse. Like, we're all guilty at the bar. If this is the, we're all dirty. We're all defiled. So the Pharisees and scribes obviously concerned about avoiding defilement, right? They had these elaborate rules to make sure you avoided defilement. They were concerned about all the out there defilement in the unclean world. They missed the greatest source of the danger in here, in the fallen human heart, like the text that Dave read. James 1. Can't say that it's God's fault. It comes from our own twisted desires. The Bible's clear about the greatest danger within. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Isaiah 64, 6, we've all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. If you're familiar with Shakespeare's Macbeth, you may remember Lady Macbeth. Maybe this is a, you know, throwback to high school. Maybe you at least read the uh, cliff notes. Um, Lady Macbeth's cry, out, out, damn spot. So she and Macbeth are guilty of murder. They have blood on their hands. He, well, actually, they both literally do. But figuratively, they can't wash it off. And it terrorizes them. The guilt just plagues them. Lady Macbeth is, you know, has nightmares repeatedly. Or Arthur Dimsdale, Scarlet Letter. His guilt over his sexual sin with Hester Prynne plagues him. And it terrorizes him to his death. Or Luther, Mark mentioned Martin Luther. He was a monk, Roman Catholic monk. And he said of himself later on after he understood salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, he said, if ever there was a monk who could be saved by his monkery, it was me. I mean, he was so rigorous, just doing everything that was prescribed to penance and all of these things. And it just never took away the guilt. It was never enough until he realized that, again, God alone, by the grace of Jesus on the cross, could take his unrighteousness. That's what Jesus took on the cross and give him his righteousness as a gift. And then he was set free. So Jeremiah 2.22, though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. So it comes from within. Back in early 1900s, like I think right around 1905, um, there's a well-known kind of, maybe you've heard it before, story of a British newspaper that sent out a question to several famous authors. And the question was, what's wrong with the world today? And G.K. Chesterton was you know, pretty quick-witted guy. He said, dear sir, he wrote back, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. Or 
Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Russian philosopher, novelist. He was an outspoken critic of communism and the repression in the Soviet Union, spent time in Soviet prison camp. He was exiled from the Soviet Union from 1974 and didn't return until 1994. And from the Gulag Archipelago, he wrote this. Again, pretty well-known quote. Maybe you've read it before. I probably quoted it before. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So this is where the problem is. In me, in you, we're in trouble. Outside-in solutions don't work. Think about this. Just, this is maybe so obvious. It's the big E on the eye chart, but it's really helpful to just see it in, you know, kind of stark relief in neon lights. If the source of the stain and the defilement comes from within, how do you avoid contact with your own heart? How can you be made clean? How do you stay clean? Where does cleansing come from? Okay. Point number three. Cleansing inside out. So we obviously need inside out cleansing. Only Jesus can get to the heart. And actually in this text, he just diagnoses the problem. So we have to put it in the context of the whole gospel of Mark, the whole Bible, to see where all of this is heading. This is the bad news that is preparation for the good news of what Jesus did on the cross for us to cleanse us from our sin. And if we trust in him, turn from our sin and trust in him. Only Jesus can get to the heart. Think of this. This is beautiful. Look at the trajectory in the Gospel of Mark. Do you remember the encounters that we've already seen when Jesus encounters the unclean? The leper, right? They had to be like in their own kind of colony away from people. And if anyone got close, unclean, unclean, couldn't get near them, what does Jesus do? He touches the leper. And what happens? Did Jesus become unclean? No. The leper became clean. His uncleanness didn't transfer to Jesus. Jesus' cleanness transferred to the leper and made him new from the inside out. Okay, I know you might nitpick the skin. Okay. Um, the woman with the bleeding. She was unclean. For 12 years she suffered. And she touches him, and rather than making the rabbi unclean, she's healed. She's saved. She's made clean. The dead girl. Remember Jairus' daughter? You don't touch a corpse. Jesus goes in, and says, time to get up, honey. The dead body, this corpse, doesn't make Jesus unclean. He makes her clean and whole and raises her up. So uncleanness doesn't transfer to him, but cleansing transfers to them. Isn't that a picture? Isn't that a foreshadowing? Do you see how it's pointing to the cross, the ultimate cleansing, the ultimate healing? This is the way it works. We're unclean. We're dirty. It's, you know, there's no way we can avoid our own hearts. It all comes from inside. Look at that list. 
We're guilty. We're dirty. We're defiled. What are we going to do? We can't clean ourselves up. No. You trust in Jesus. You touch him by faith. I need you. And his cleanness transfers to you because he died for your uncleanness. Your uncleanness was taken by him on the cross. So listen, Jesus wasn't just a teacher. He was a teacher. He wasn't a politician, certainly, even though he was king. He wasn't a military leader. He's not a therapist because those are not our greatest problems. He's a savior. Because we needed saved and cleansed and forgiven and made new from the inside out. That true inner cleansing works its way out then. Do you see how this is inside out cleansing rather than outside in? It's not in contrast to the commandment of God. It actually upholds and enables life change and obedience to the commandment of God. You see how it's the, the foil, the opposite of, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes. You actually undermine the commandment of God. You actually reject it for the sake of your tradition. And Jesus, by his grace and his inner cleansing, enables us to live new lives. So here's the thing, to play with this inside-out thing. Not outside-in, but inside-out. And we need to know Jesus is cleansing inside-out inside out. You get it? We need to know the grace of Jesus inside out, inside and out, right? Just like the back of your hand. So well, the gospel's so sweet, so that you don't relate to God when you sin. Oh, I need to clean up my act. Or I feel better in relation to God. He probably likes me more on my good days, and he barely puts up with me on my bad days. No. When you sin, you run to him. Oh, forgive me, cleanse me. So we need to know the gospel inside and out because that's what changes us from the inside out. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made him to be sin. Who knew no sin? Jesus was sinless. And he was made to be sin on the cross, dying, not for his own sins, but for ours, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, cleansed, made new, made right with God, at peace with God. He cleans us up from the inside out. Listen to his heart in Isaiah 1. Come now, let us reason together. This was spoken to idolatrous, wandering, like insolent teenager like Israel back in Isaiah's day. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. You do not have to get cleaned up to take a bath. Jesus cleans us up from the inside out. We need to know this merciful grace inside and out. And then when the renewal begins within, 
it works its way out into every nook and cranny of life. Doesn't mean we're going to be perfect in this life, but we will be real. It's not a facade. It's not a veneer. It's real newness. We sincerely desire to follow Jesus in every aspect of life. No, no whitewashing. No facades, no fakeness. Real Christians made clean and new by the real Jesus. I love this quote by William Arnault. It's, it's actually from his commentary on Proverbs. I've quoted it before. The difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that the one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against the dreaded God and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his sins. When Jesus cleanses you, makes you new from the inside, it doesn't mean you won't have any more sin. But you are with God against your hated sins. You're not really trying to hold on to your sins against a dreaded God and trying to just look the part. So when we sin, we can cry out with the psalmist, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And he will. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can say amen to Paul's exhortation in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises... They're all ours in Christ. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God inside out, not outside external religion. So, family, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then to fast forward to the end, I love the book, how the book of Revelation shows us the future for real, forgiven, cleansed sinners. Revelation 19, 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. Listen to this language here. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So this is not our religious observance, us cleaning up our act. And then when we do say, I'm here, I'm good, I get in because of all that I've done. But it also doesn't mean it really doesn't matter what I do because, you know, God will forgive me. That's his job. Like flippant. Look at where it goes from there. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Do you see how it holds those things together? It's a gift. It's by grace. It's granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and, bright and pure. We don't do this in our own strength. Absolutely not. It's a gift of grace. But when that grace is operative internally, we're being made new from the inside out, then we want to live new lives do righteous deeds, not in order to be right with God, but because we've been made right with God. Amen? So we are going to respond now with a song that's very fitting. 
We've sung it a number of times here over the years, Yet Not I, but Christ in Me. By, um, and I just want you to listen to a few of the stanzas here as the worship team comes up and we prepare to sing this song in response. So again, just think about that Revelation passage. Yet not I, it's not me <laughs> that makes myself clean. It's Christ in me. And any goodness that flows out in my life, any righteousness, any cleanness, any fruit is the result of Christ in me. It's not I. So no fate I dread. I know I am forgiven. The future, sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus, now and ever, is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing I am free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. With every breath then, I long to follow Jesus. New desires, inside out. For he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. Amen. Let's sing.